0: To episode fifteen of Tea or Books, I'm Simon. I'm Rachel. Um, today's episode, we'll be discussing the ridiculously broad topic of plays versus poetry, um, and we'll also be doing two novels by Daphne du Maurier, Rebecca, and my cousin Rachel. Um, just thinking after, you know how podcasts always start with this: "Welcome to such and such the podcast." Where? And I feel like we need a tagline, but. <laughs> Suggest one, listener. Yes, suggest (laughs) one. I can only get as far as the the podcast where we debate completely unnecessary decisions. (laughs) (laughs) Completely unnecessary literary decisions.
1: (laughs) On a very broad and unspecified basis.
0: (laughs) Yes, a shambles, essentially. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, How are you, Richard? How was your holiday that you told us about last time?
1: Oh, it was lovely, thank you. So for those who didn't listen to last episode, shame on you.
0: Yeah, shame Uh, on you.
1: (laughs) I did a little mini tour of the Baltic. So, I went to Latvia and Estonia and Finland, all of which were very nice. Latvia and Estonia, quite similar landscape and architecture-wise, um, I felt. Don't stone people from those countries who feel that they're very different. We've got a big um, Estonian
0: audience as well, I think.
1: <laughs> well, we might do. I don't know. Um, Finland is much more, reminded me very much of St. Petersburg, which is unsurprising, seeing as it was largely designed by Alexander II of Russia, so... Um, Very different, very um, contrasting cultures and architecture in both places, but absolutely lovely. And lots of forest with, like, pine trees and birch trees and lots of sort of thin lines, you know what I mean? Very un-English, which I like.
0: It always makes you think, you know how... Publishers very kindly send free books to book bloggers. If you're like a travel blogger, will you just be sent on free holidays everywhere?
1: I know, I did, I did think about this a couple of years ago, because I thought, well, you know, I think I've gone into the wrong industry here. <laughs> you could be having such a great time.
0: Yeah, let's let's turn your books into a travel blog. I mean, I went to Shropshire recently, so, you know. <laughs> <laughs> that's all I have to feed back on. But it, um, <laughs> Did you get much reading done while you were on holiday? Um,
1: no. Well, I got a bit done on the plane, but I was reading, um, actually quite an interesting book. It's a non-fiction book. Um, it's called the phony war in Britain. Hmm. Um, and it was written in the sixties and it's sort of a comical look at the basic balls up that the first year of the war was in Britain. Um, and it's, I'm reading it because I'm still attempting to write a book set during that period. So I was doing it for, um, research purposes how exciting and, yes but well, not very exciting because will <laughs> never see the light of day but well, the less said about that the better <laughs> um, so i've read a bit of that i'm currently halfway through the blessing by nancy mitford mm. um which i'm not finding my favorite of hers but i'm um, it's still amusing enough for me to be plowing on with it i'm glad yeah
0: and after our plea last time to be able to email you were you inundated with emails no, i had none oh people come on email rachel <laughs>
1: <laughs> I bet you've had about 50.
0: <laughs> I have had one more, I think. yes <laughs> oh. Sorry. It's
1: okay, it's fine. I'm not upset at all. <laughs> and what about you? What have you been up to? What are you reading?
0: Um of course cool. so I have um I finished Lent and I fin- and I did not buy a book during it. I, I finished oh. Lent. everyone finished Lent, but I also <laughs> did not buy a book during it. So i was very proud of myself. Um,
1: did you immediately go out the day after and buy books?
0: I did. Well, I tried to, but everything was shut because it was a bank holiday. So there's one charity <laughs> shop that was open. I bought a couple of books in there, one of which I think I already have. It's uh, But um <laughs> I bought a book about cats. Um, <laughs> and and this shows how deep my love of Virginia Woolf goes, a sequel to a collection of uh newspapers that, or articles that Virginia Woolf wrote with her relatives when she was a child. Okay. <laughs> so, which is the book I think I've already got a copy of. So, Random. <laughs> that's, that, that's a need. Um, I am currently reading, um, The Secret Orchard of Roger Ackley by Diane, and I'm not sure how to pronounce her surname. It's spelled P-E-T-R-E, so it might be Petra or Peter, I don't know. Yeah. Um, which is the latest slightly foxed edition. It's one of those, those beautiful little halfback memoirs they do.
1: I feel like I know who Roger Ackley is, but I can't.
0: He is the father of J.R. Ackley, who so J.R. Ackley wrote uh, a mildly famous uh, memoir called My Father and Myself, which is about him. But the oh. intrigue is that whilst they both share him as a father, they did um, they never knew each other. He had two se- he had two families, and and Diane was a, one of the secret fam- was the secret family that um, well sort of an open secret, but the first family didn't know about. them.
1: How interesting.
0: Yes, very exciting. Um, and it's beautiful, um, beautifully written, which I'm I'm reading that for the next issue of Shiny New Books, which by the time this podcast goes live, will possibly be live. And then I'm on to 1938 books, because that comes up next week as well. Goodness. <laughs> yes. Yeah, you know, I, I'm fully
1: really intending on participating in that. I'm just hoping to be able to find something that, that fits.
0: Um, yes, I... I made a pile of things of it, and then I'm, trying, I'm at the moment, the one I'm reading for that is Enemies of Promise by Cyril Connolly, which is a sort of, um, literary criticism from the 60s, which is, is very interesting, but it's not fast reading. So I've also got, um, what's it called? It's a Persephone, Children, children Lived in the Barn, and um, that's 1938, and I've never read that.
1: That's very, I remember reading that, I liked it.
0: Oh, good. But my most exciting podcast related news, yes. <laughs> um, so a, a short, six months whatever it is since buying the mic that I'm currently speaking into um, I have finally worked out how to use the stand it comes with <laughs> <laughs> so up until this point dear listeners and dear Rachel I have been putting the mic basically in a mug just holding the <laughs> mug <laughs> Even though it came with a tripod, I just couldn't work out how to assemble this. And I happened to mention this to my boss, who found a, a video of how to do it, and it was incredibly simple. <laughs> so,
1: Thank goodness you, for your boss.
0: My Yes, absolutely. So now I'm hands-free. You can just pop it up on the desk in front of me.
1: Fantastic. Well done. Yeah. I mean, our technological skill between us is quite limited, <laughs> I have to say. For people who are young... Um, we will say we are still young.
0: Yes, let's cling on to that, please. I am
1: not yet 30, Simon.
0: I shan't comment on that matter. <laughs>
1: um, so, you know, it's it's quite shocking, really. The kids at school always laugh at me about how rubbish I am at technology. <laughs> like, miss, just press this button. I'm like, I am pressing the button and it is not working. <laughs> um, like... Ten-year-old comes up and starts fiddling around, and then
0: the lights fix. Okay. Well, yesterday I was in London seeing my my very dear friends, Lorna and Will, who are visiting from America, um, who who listen to the podcast. Say hi, Lorna and Will. Oh. Um, but they they're very kind about it, and they say nice things. But they're both professional broadcast journalists, <laughs> <laughs> and so, and so I always think that I mean the, the fact that they deal with high tech equipment all the time and know precisely what they're doing with everything. Well, I'm sure they've technical people as well but yes i'm sure they've never had to record anything with a mic in a mug (laughs)
1: well we we like to do firsts here yes
0: (laughs) homespun (laughs) um and this is one of the times i've remembered to shut my bedroom window so hopefully the sound quality will be better than the solid half of the episodes where i forget
1: (laughs) (laughs) i've got my window shut so we shouldn't
0: hear any oh well i think that's cleared up everything (laughs) Let's let's sweep straight into the first topic, which was decided whilst I was um, on a bus home from London yesterday. I was like, "What should we do? How about this?" And the reason I chose plays or poetry was um, they're very. It is a very broad topic, but <laughs> I think they're both formats or um, mediums of literature that a lot of people don't read. Um, mm. And I was wondering whether you did, and if you did, which one more often? Go. <laughs> Oh, thanks,
1: Simon. Um, Well, I mean, I think it's a bit of a cheat on this one for me, because as an English teacher, um, obviously I deal with plays and poetry pretty much on a daily basis. Um, So it's kind of part of my job. Um, And which do I enjoy reading more? Well, I think... The thing is, for me, I'm going to be uh, pernickety about it and say I don't really think plays are to be read. So... Personally, I would prefer to read poetry and watch plays being performed because um, I love studying plays with the kids. I love studying it by myself as well, like looking at plays and looking. But um, I think plays don't really come to life on the page, and that's in my experience. It's always much better to be able to see it, and then the words come to life. I think reading it just as a text you're missing half of the mm. intended effect. Whereas when you read a poem, that's an entirely different experience. I mean, Obviously, there are performance poets and, and poetry that is written specifically to be performed and, and seen as a more of a play, I suppose, in some elements. But um, in terms of being able to read it and enjoy it and hear the sounds and feel engaged and involved in the words that are on the page, I think with poetry that's much more of a... Of a reading experience and also more of a solitary experience rather than a play is an ensemble piece that requires several different people to come together and bring it to life for you. So I think they're comparable in the sense that, yes, they are two genres of literature. Can we call them genres? Types of literature. I don't think genres. Yes,
0: not um I went with medium, but I'm not sure it's correct. I should definitely know this. <laughs> like, I, know, I,
1: I should definitely.
0: Yes. <laughs> yes, for, yes, yes, Um
1: I would say two two streams of literature. Sure. Let's call them streams <laughs> um, that are comparable in the sense that you know the average person on the street doesn't tend to go into a bookshop and buy a play or buy a, buy a book of poetry. It's not necessarily something that's read very often, unless you have to for academic purposes, um, and I think, but otherwise, I think they're quite different. And I don't think I could um, compare them that closely in in the sense of which I prefer, because...
0: (laughs) The whole whole thing's a charade, (laughs) basically.
1: But I do agree, in the sense that I think lots of people, for some reason, are afraid of reading poetry. Mm. and Lots of people have... I think a lot of people, when people talk to me about this, when I say, oh, I'm an English teacher, and they say, oh... I used to hate English lessons at school, all that poetry, Mm -hmm. all that Shakespeare, I didn't understand a word of it. And I think a lot of people have those negative memories from school when they've been sitting there and not really understood what they're looking at. Nothing's come to life for them from a poem or... or. Mm. And so I think a lot of people have um, negative associations and that's why they don't tend to pick them up. So Um,
0: are there playwrights... Let's let's start with plays. Um, Are there playwrights that you do read for yourself for philosophical fun rather than for school?
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, I mean I have to do I mean I'd have to teach this playwright, but I also love Winning His own right, which is Arthur Miller, who's my absolute mm. I love his plays. Um, especially A View from the Bridge, which my former students knew I was ridiculously passionate about and I used to play all the parts <laughs> <laughs> Never read, ever. Um, and I also really enjoy Shakespeare for pleasure as well. Mm. just love reading Shakespeare. Um And that is something that I think you can read for pleasure because there's so much to enjoy with the words. And I think actually you lose a lot of the words sometimes when you're watching a performance, because I find Shakespeare plays tend to be performed very quickly Mm. and often you lose some of the um, nuances. So I quite like reading that and reading it over. Um, I also really love Tennessee Williams. I'm quite a big fan of American playwrights in general. So
0: it seems, yeah. Um, I definitely agree with you about Shakespeare. I think, um i enjoy seeing shakespeare but he's obviously he has this such rich language and there's so much to get from it that i find sometimes when i'm watching a performance i'm watching chiefly for the plot maybe um particularly if if i'm you know not in the, in the most Shakespeare frame of mind and i'm having to concentrate a bit to work out quite what's going on because yeah. yes i still find that i do sometimes um feel that barrier between between me and his language but when i'm reading it you can just read the same Beautiful lines. Over, if you again, if you're appreciating it, or you can, or if you if you just need to get the meaning more. Um, I feel like as as you say, it's too, too much there to appreciate in a in a single performance. Um, at the pace at which they do them, I can see why they do them fast as well. Because, well, firstly, they're, they're so long. <laughs> like, <laughs> if, if you did lots of Pinterest pausing in there, then it would take about yeah. nine hours. But but um, also perhaps so people who aren't. So appreciative, or um, of the of language for its own sake. Watching it can have that sort of exciting plots that Shakespeare always puts in as well, and follow that more. Um, but for me, um, I came to plays as, as I came to so many other things through AML. Um, <laughs> Is so, that- yes, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, for those, I don't think I've talked about AML on, on the podcast much before, uh, but. Um, he I'm was
1: the... sit back and relax now, are you
0: Could you? I could be here for hours. I'll be restrained. <laughs> but um he was an author who introduced me to the world of adult literature essentially, um ironically, given he is most famous for children's literature. But around 2002 I basically read everything um that he wrote, and he as well as writing Winnie the Pooh wrote sketches and stories and novels and poetry and pacifist works and autobiography, and also plays. He wrote a lot of plays. He was very famous as being a playwright before he was famous swimming John's author, and people don't put this plays on now, so I can either not know about them or I can read them. So early on in my reading career, as it were, I got very used to reading plays. And the interesting thing with A. Moon actually is that, um and I'm sure other playwrights, is that he puts a lot of work into the stage directions. Um so they're not just uh practical, they're often very funny. Um and they're often they often tell you things that people wouldn't know if they were just uh, watching it. He he was aware that the audience who bought the play were buying a book and wanted, you know, everything they could get from a physical text, not just what they get from performance. And so he does put these um, sly asides or these witty bits into the stage directions that I always very much enjoy.
1: Yeah, I think, um, yeah, the art of the stage direction is certainly going out of fashion these days. As, um, certainly... Early twentieth-century playwrights love a love a stage direction. Hmm. JB Priestley loves loves the stage direction. I was just analysing those the other day with the kids. We were doing uh, the spectacles, and they were of like, you are, yeah." <laughs> classic. And um, they were like, "Oh, you know," but they don't actually follow follow these all the time because we were talking about how obviously directors. Can take or leave the stage directions and they can interpret them. And they were like, well, why do they bother writing them that? And I was like, well, because, you know, some people are reading the play and they want to get an idea of it as well. So I think it works both ways. I don't think, I mean, like, when I look at modern plays, for example, Tom Stoppard, someone like that, when I look at the, the play script, I don't think they tend to show that it's, it's bit, it seems to be a bit more of an old fashioned thing these days to give reams and reams and reams of stage directions. Mm. Because everything's a bit more, you know, up to the interpretation, isn't
0: it? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's also a room for, I don't know, whimsy or something that that perhaps wouldn't be so popular now, but someone like, or like Milne or like Noel Coward or someone would have really enjoyed putting those things in.
1: No, I love Noel Coward as well. Brilliant.
0: And and I think he's one that, um... It's maybe not better to read, but it's certainly different because when you're watching it, it's all about, um... There's lots of, you know, witticisms, but you miss some of the wordplay if it's just flying past on stage, you can really sort of revel in it on the page, perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's one author, uh, playwright who I read, I think, everything by when I was an undergraduate, which um, is Harold Pinter, <laughs> um, which he really needs to be seen <laughs> on stage, I say now, despite having read all of it at the time, because... Um, so much of it is in, is about the performance and about the pausing and about, you know, there's not that many words in them, frankly. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's, yeah, he was, he, a man Beckett very, very keen to emphasize so much about the performance in their directions that it, they, they seem quite certain that it was a, not only first and foremost, but only a, a visual medium, it seems. Whereas, yeah, I don't know. In terms of buying players, I get the impression that bookshops had a lot more printed plays in them just for reading in the past and they do now where you tend to only get acting editions or scholarly editions you don't seem to get just plays that people might want to read
1: no you don't and i think it has become something that people just don't do now um and i don't know why that is necessarily um maybe because plays were watched more in the past before tv and film became so prevalent everywhere i mean i suppose in the 40s and 50s most people still didn't have televisions at home so you're going to see the theatre much more often and uh,
0: Mm.
1: or perhaps people performed more at home I don't know I'm just making this up entirely but maybe people
0: I believe it yeah (laughs) uh,
1: you know people maybe performed more often or did these things and and use them as ways for as entertainment um maybe in a way that we don't these days but I do think there is um certainly from conversations I've had with people there, there is a sense that plays and, and poetry as well are academic and not something that you read for pleasure.
0: I think because the history of English literature is obviously um, filled with plays and poetry and the novel is something of a latter-day invention in that. Absolutely. so So when we're studying it, or, like, or when you and I um, were studying it, you know, so you, there's lots of um, lots of plays that you have to read. I, I found it very useful that I'd already read lots of A.M.M. plays because it didn't feel that foreign to me. But it does it does become something that is you, people only read with the mindset of either being at school or being at university, or something, which I think is a shame because yeah. whilst you know, obviously there are very many brilliant English teachers out there. <laughs> um, you. You, yeah. You don't want I don't, reading to be something that's just for the classroom in any particular um, stream or genre or, or period or anything. You, obviously you want to inculcate a love of reading outside the classroom. Um yeah. And I think it would be a shame if people thought that a particular um, section of literature was close to them outside of academic academia.
1: Yeah, I think so. And I mean, I'm, because I'm quite confident and happy to do drama in the classroom as well. I often, we do, I teach plays through performing them. But mm. a lot of teachers, English teachers, in my experience, are not particularly into drama and they don't like to do drama, they don't feel comfortable doing it. So I think that's also a barrier as well, is that you don't' they're not taught as- as texts as, as plays they're taught as texts, and I think that's a big problem with Shakespeare and I know the Royal Shakespeare company is, is trying to do a lot um with that in schools. It's called Stand up for Shakespeare is their big program mm-hmm. um, that they have done a lot of training with, and I've been lucky to have had that training where they sort of teach English teachers in secondary schools how to teach the plays through performance, and you get so much more excitement out of the kids when they are able to actually. Perform the roles and feel involved in the characters through thought processes and all that sort of thing, rather than just reading the text and being like, "I have no idea what's going on." Yeah, um,
0: uh, sorry. <laughs>
1: no, I can
0: say the right? As I say a few times, my friends and I um, have done Shakespeare readings ourselves, not like performing them particularly, but just getting together in the park and reading lots of different parts out between us. Parts, yeah, Simon. And that's It's not the most exciting thing in the world, but um, <laughs> <laughs> well, particularly brilliant actually was. Um, i went i spent a month in the philippines working in um London schools and things in between my second and third year at university and during that summer bear with me this is relevant <laughs> during that summer i was supposed to read um all of chaucer all of virginia Woolf, and all of shakespeare um so i thought during that month i'd read all of shakespeare or as much as i could so the only book i took with me for a month was the complete works of shakespeare um and the friends i was with um for a couple of plays, we did read everything aloud and took sort of ten parts each because there are so many parts and not many of us. And we read Coriolanus, and it was the first book my friend Paddy had read since he was about. It was since he was about thirteen, I think. Um, and it was so exciting to see because he—he was a mathematician. It was so exciting to see him get really into it. Um, and Coriolanus has got a lot of political stories as well as domestic stories. I think it's a really interesting play and. And he was, yeah, he got really excited about the politics of it, and, um, it was just really fun. I think that was, um, he wouldn't have sat next to me reading a novel, even if I was reading a novel, but he got into that way. So I think it's a more collaborative way of, of reading, which is not, which is really fun.
1: Yeah, and I think that would be lovely if people saw plays and also poetry very much in that way as as something that's supposed to be done aloud. And I think if you, I mean, again, I find it quite interesting that people see poetry as being such an academic thing as well as, as plays, because actually poetry was the first form of literature and it was very much something that everybody did and everyone was involved in everyone listened to poems everyone wrote poems Mm -hmm. and it was very egalitarian in that sense it wasn't you know something that people were frightened of it was just how people communicated um and you know the oral tradition in poetry is so strong which is where performance poetry comes out of and I find it quite beguiling really when children say oh I don't understand this this makes no sense I'm like well it does it's you know it's not really that different to reading a book it's just more expressive you know you're just looking at fewer words so it should really be easier but people Mm. have this enormous barrier um when they look at it and you know again i think it just goes back to school really and people feeling that they're being asked to to, i think also with poetry you're being asked to analyze to death sometimes um Mm. And that sucks some of the meaning out of it. And I think that's also a lot of the time why people don't like Shakespeare is because literally every word has to be poured over. And I think um, that does, you can overanalyze text, certainly.
0: Well, having waxed lyrical about how much I love um, drama, I have to admit that I do have stumbling blocks when it comes to poetry. Um, and, and, and I've, I've often wondered what the reason for that is. And I tried to find things and I, um, to sort of overcome it because I'd love to love poetry as much as some people do um, and I think my main issue is I find it really hard to slow my reading down in order to read poetry because I I read fairly fast and that's fine for novels but poetry often is completely killed if you read it fast so the times I've tried it I just try and read it out loud to myself but it's not particularly practical on the train <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think the other thing and I'd love to know more specifics about your favourite poets and things, is that, um, I feel like I'm pretty good at knowing whether a novel is well written or badly written, and I, and, and I enjoy some novels that I know aren't great literature a lot um i enjoy some novels i think are great literature and i but i feel like i know whereas with poetry i just have no clue like there are some poems i like and i think is this doggerel is this and i know there's the whole like if you enjoy a poem that's fine it doesn't matter and i accept all that but i also just want to know (laughs) whether a poem is good or not (laughs) like i really loved a poem i read by longfellow um and i can't remember the name of it now was
1: very unfashionable now
0: well very unfashionable and and I think probably not very good, but I don't know if <laughs> if except a poem has the line "Who was changed and who was dead in it," which is um Barbara Cummins took the novel of her, sorry the title of her novel from that poem um
1: is that one of the Hiawatha poems. <sighs>
0: All I remember is I think it's got the word fire in the title. <laughs> so, so, I, I,
1: I do have an edition of Longfellow Poems, but I don't think it's here. I think it's at my mum's house. Um, otherwise, I'd look it up for you. But...
0: <laughs> um, I mean, I could Google it, I guess. But I, I, And I magically would have done by the time you look in the show notes <laughs> to see what poem I'm referring to. But, um, yeah, so something like that, I... I, I and indeed, like Walter de la Mer, uh, the listeners, another poem I really enjoyed, but I think, I don't know, is this, is this cheap, bad literature? Is it good literature? Um, I just, I feel like the frameworks and sort of, um, I don't know, handholds for understanding whether or not literature is good to, uh, are lost to me when I come to poetry.
1: Well, I think, no, but does it matter? Because if you enjoy it, then...
0: Well, I think, I mean, I definitely think there's something to say for that, but I also, I feel like to me, it, it does matter. Like, I want not that I want to only read great poetry or only want to read great novels, but I want to sort. I want to sort of know, like, in the same way that if I was reading a Virginia Woolf novel or reading, I don't know, like Bridget Jones or something, I want to know. I'm glad that. Well, I'm. I feel like I know that Virginia Woolf is better than Bridget Jones uh, or <laughs> Helen Fielding, and that makes me feel comfortable. Like, I think I'm loving reading Bridget Jones right now, but I know that it's not great literature. I don't know, it's, it's it's silly, but it is something like that I feel I, I need to have a grip on what sort of literature I'm reading when I'm reading it.
1: Well, I think the difficulty with poetry is certainly the fashions change considerably, and certainly the poets that were considered great during the Victorian era are often not considered great now. So, for example, Longfellow was enormously popular in the Victorian times, but those very, very long historical poems nowadays are very passé and not considered very good. Just like Tennyson is largely, um, you know, aside from The Lady of Shalott, he wrote some spectacularly weird stuff that wasn't (laughs) particularly good. And also because a lot of these poets were jobbing poets, like, you know, people like Dickens and all those jobbing novelists, they were jobbing poets and they had Mm -hmm. to churn out poetry. (laughs) And a lot of the poetry hasn't had the care that you would associate perhaps with More modern poets who are obviously taking their poetry as more of a craft, as an artistic expression, um, and and, you know, obsessing over every word. Whereas I think when you go back to the Victorian period, poetry was something that was read on a much more popular basis than nowadays. Mm -hmm. And I don't don't really think there was that distinction between um, the types of literature as there is now. And I think that's pretty much because, I mean, the first english degree didn't come in english literature degree didn't happen until after first world war i don't mm, think right, there's classics yeah. beforehand so i think this whole concept of poetry as being some higher art form has really only come into existence in the 20th century so when you look at a lot of victorian poetry it tends to be quite saccharine quite religious um, quite um, hi- and also lots of historical stuff Recounting historical events also used a lot for for propaganda purposes and also patriotic purposes. So there is a lot of great Victorian poetry out there. Um, My favourite Victorian poem is um, Matthew Arnold's Dover Beach, which I just adore. Mm. Um, I like Matthew Arnold in general; he's really good. And I love some Tennyson stuff. Like I really enjoy The Lady of Shalott. I don't think it's great literature, but I just love the way that the lines flow and it sounds beautiful. Um, and I also really like reading *The Charge of the Light Brigade* because the onomatopoeia is really good. But in terms <laughs> of the kind of the actual quality of the poem, it's not that great. Um, I think when you come into the 20th century and you've got poets um, such as you know, Wilfred Owen, Siegfried Sassoon, those war poets, I think war poetry started this real um, lively interest in poetry as an emotional expression, mm. and it became much more. Um, a way of being artistic and being clever with literature. And I think from sort of 1916 onwards, you're getting much more experimental forms of literature. And then you get people like Ezra Pound, um, who are writing those really stripped back modernist poems that are, the words are really interesting and they are much less to be read for pleasure and more to be read to be appreciated. And I think that's where the shift begins. Um, but I think nowadays, actually, there's a bit of a kickback against that. And you've got people like Caroline Duffy and Jenny Jones and um, people like that who are mm. writing for a more broad audience. And even though I'm sure poetry doesn't sell particularly well, um, <laughs> you do have those more sort of popular poets who do write for, um, who aren't writing something that's, you know, beautiful. they stuff but they're writing stuff that's relevant as well I think a lot of early 20th century poetry just is random (laughs) you know there's that um Ezra Pound one in a station at the metro petals on a wet on a black bow whatever I can't remember the exact lines of it but it's you know it's two lines it's and it's supposed to be just like a snapshot whereas you read something of Caroline Duffy's for example and that's much more accessible and that's why she studied for GCSE for example because the children can make sense of it and it um, is something that is understandable and accessible for them. Whereas if you gave them a modernist poet, they wouldn't know where to start.
0: Yes. <laughs> um, I was asked the other day at work, actually, um, for, for National Poetry Month in, in April, or uh, well, May or whenever it is, it must be April, um, for our favourite poem, we had to pick our favourite poem. And this is where I really struggled. And the one I actually chose in the end um because I think it's widely accepted to probably count as a poem, was Psalm 51. Um, it's like the was basically our poems. And I think, I mean, talking about putting emotion into verse, that was probably not where it started, but obviously a very famous place where it happened. <laughs> um, <laughs> and yeah, I, I thought that that, um, was a choice that I felt confident that I knew that it meant something to me and <laughs> I knew that I, um, that it was. Beautifully written, or at least the translation I read was beautifully written. Um, but also, that was like, shall I say something by Walter De Lemaire. Will people laugh at me?
1: <laughs> well, no, I think you know I, that's the core. What you just said is, I think the core of poetry is: does it move you? Does it matter to you? Does it speak to you? And some people might read something that's considered to be rubbish poetry, but it might really speak to them in some way. There might be an image or an emotion. I think because poetry is so emotion based you will react to poems in a different way than you will a novel, I think. Perhaps
0: that's why I feel less inclined to read them even than drama, because sometimes I want to read something that will speak to me emotionally. Um, Sometimes I want to read something for a completely different reason. Um, And obviously there's comic verse and all sorts, but um, I don't know. I feel like there's, there's a certain frame of mind I have to be in for poetry, which there are many more frames of mind in which I'm happy to read a novel or indeed a play.
1: Yeah, no, I completely agree. I will never sit on the tube with a volume of poetry. It just doesn't happen. Mm. I have to be in the right mood and I have to want to read something specific. And also, I, I don't think you can read one poem after another, after another, after another. Like, That's a good point. You need to sit and have time with a poem, which, again, is why I think they are something that people don't necessarily enjoy as much. I mean, personally, I will read... T- I get—I subscribe to the London Review of Books and they have uh, people do poems in there every week. And a lot of the time I read the first couple of lines and think, oh, this isn't for me, I don't like this. Um, whereas someone else might think it's brilliant, but I just think, oh, this isn't... It's just overwritten, I don't like it. Because mm. um, I prefer some more simple things. Like my favourite poet um, of all time is Robert Frost. Hmm,
0: okay, cool. <laughs> Very good. What, what would you recommend by him?
1: Um, there's So many really good poems, but I think probably my favourite one of his, I used to teach these to my A-level students, um, and I'm just trying to think which one I like the most. It's such a decision, because <laughs> there's so many wonderful ones. Um, and they're wonderful, and once you start picking them apart and studying them, you get so much from them, and it's so amazing. Um, And then once you can compare different poems and look at common themes and things, that's why I think the benefit of sticking with one poet and looking at a range of their works is really beneficial. Um, I think probably my favourite of his is is Stopping by Woods on a Snowy Evening, which is quite short and seems to be very simplistic. But once you start analysing it, there are so many depths.
0: Mm. that's the good thing about recommending a poem actually at least someone could go and read it very quickly <laughs> it's yeah. not like recommending a 500 page novel to someone <laughs> no
1: exactly
0: um, weirdly actually a p- book of poetry I did really like that um, Dark Puss aka Peter um, gave to me a blogging event I think it was him um Is one, and I'm going to horribly mispronounce the name because um, it's Polish, and I'm going to say Wysława Zimborska, but um, I will also spell it out on the, in the blog post, um, which is called People on a Bridge. Um, The collection was called People on a Bridge and also that one of the poems in it was. Um, It's, and uh, originally written in Polish and and I can't remember who the translator was for the collection I read, but um, they were, at least in the translation, they were quite um, sparse and simple, but very evocative. And there was one I particularly remember, which was from the perspective of um, someone who had put a bomb into a club, watching people walk in and out of the club, like, sort of thinking who is going to be in, in it when the bomb explodes, which is a weird topic for a poem, but it was um, handled really beautifully and really sort of, yeah, movingly. Um so I don't know if it's something to do with it being in translation from another language or specifically in translation from Polish or just that happened to be the way that this particular poet wrote or that particular translator wrote, but, but that collection um, I, I think is worth looking out for. Oh, okay.
1: I'll look
0: at that. Yeah. Um, yes, don't try and spell it based off my pronunciation. But <laughs> <I'll post that laughs> so we
1: should probably make a decision. Yes. What do you think you would go with?
0: Um... Although I want to be better at poetry, I, w- I think I would always choose plays.
1: I think I would go with poetry because I prefer to watch plays performed.
0: Good, good. <laughs>
1: yeah, easy. Um, so let's try and segue into the next one. Um,
0: <laughs> we can segue okay. right from the beginning and that one of them's a 1938
1: novel. <laughs> oh, there we are, yes. And they've both been made into films. They have. <laughs> Which often plays are made into films. That's very technical. Possibly
0: our worst ever segment. Yeah, sorry you. <laughs> about
1: that. I couldn't think of anything better. Um, so, Rebecca and my cousin Rachel, I feel that these are probably her most famous and most read books, I would imagine.
0: Yes, I think Jamaica Rin might get a look in but Yes, i yes. say that. But these are the main three.
1: Yeah.
0: Um... Yes. Do you want to introduce one of them and I'll introduce the other?
1: Okay. Um, I'll introduce Rebecca, Thought unless you want me to do my cousin. No,
0: it's all right. You go for it.
1: Um, so Rebecca is the story of an unnamed narrator who is, um, starts off the novel very young and she is on holiday with her um, the woman she is a companion for, which is a wonderfully old-fashioned... <laughs> And she meets this very mysterious and attractive man called Maxim, who very promptly proposes marriage to her, <laughs> um, and whisks her back off to his home, Mandley in Cornwall. And he is a widower; his wife has died in unspecified circumstances, but everyone talks about how much he and his wife were devoted to each other, how wonderful his wife was, how much they loved each other, etc. So it's quite intimidating for her to walk into this situation. And it's made even more intimidating by the fact that the woman in charge of the house, Mrs. Danvers, um, was Rebecca's maid and adored her and soon sets about making the unnamed narrator's life very difficult indeed. And things start to take a rather frightening turn and there are many twists along the way as so you discover who the real fresh yeah. was.
0: Lovely, thank you. Yeah. Um so my cousin Rachel was written um about 13, thirteen, fourteen years later. Um it's about and uh, the main character is a guy called Philip who when he's um quite young, his cousin Ambrose goes off to um who lives in this bigger state with him goes off to somewhere, Florence maybe, um, and meets a distant relative of theirs called Rachel. Um, He marries Rachel and quite soon afterwards, um, um, Philip discovers uh, dies. And um, he is suspicious about the intentions of this Rachel or what she may or may not have done, whether Ambrose was murdered or not, um, whether or not they were truly in love. He's not sure about any of it. um, And he is wondering where she's gone. She seems to have disappeared when she turns up at the house and moves in for a bit. Um And after that, it sort of becomes a bit like a detection novel in a way in that he is trying to work out whether she's a goodie or a baddie, but all the while is falling in love with her. Um And I think we, this section of the podcast may get quite spoilery in general, but it's pretty hard to be spoilerific about my cousin Rachel because I think it is... Probably the best novel I've ever read in in ter- um, for ambiguity. Yeah, I, I, I finished it thinking I have no idea whether this woman is good or bad, or what she's planning or planned. Um, because yes, big spoiler now. Um, turn off if you've not read it. That um, she dies at the end when she um, when Philip says that she should walk over this, or directs her to walk over this unstable bridge, and he finds her as she's dying, and he and we still don't know whether she murdered her husband and whether or not she was planning to murder Philip.
1: Yeah. It's, I think for me, I've read it a couple of times and both times I just, I was hoping the second time that I would see more in, in the text to help me make my mind up. I thought, well, maybe she, she must've left some clues here that I missed the first time, but she really doesn't. And you know, you start. I start off every time thinking, "Well, she definitely did it. She's evil." And then, as you move towards the end, and Philip becomes more kind of ranty and razy and you think, "Well, you know, is he?" He's
0: unstable. He's yeah, <laughs> here?
1: And you just can't make. You really cannot make your mind up.
0: I think it's so cleverly done because often people refer to ambiguous endings, and they tend to just mean incomplete endings. Yeah. Um, yeah. Whereas this one, you read. We had. I read it from my book group a few years ago, and we were all discussing. So looking at something like, did she do it? I just don't know. <laughs> and you convince yourself one way, one moment, one way the next, whilst you're reading it and after you finished it. Yeah. Um, as well as having many other qualities. So is it, I think it's a um, beautiful description of, of the landscape and that sort of thing. It's, um, I wouldn't say she's the finest prose stylist in the world, but I think she writes well, um, very atmospherically, certainly mm-hmm. that's perhaps her strength. Um, and just really interesting multifaceted characters.
1: Yeah, she's really good at creating atmosphere and of creating that sense of uncertainty about people. Um, You're never quite sure what people's intentions are. And I think that um, element of mystery about people is something that she does really well because she manages to make people mysterious but also likeable at the same time. So you Mm -hmm. don't... but even Mrs. Danvers, who's kind of evil, in Rebecca, you think, well, you know, there's, there's got to be some reason why she's like this. And you can kind of start digging into the character. She's very good at psychological portraits of people. Um, and I think that's what's great about Rebecca as well, is that there is so much uncertainty. Again, even though you get a more, um, or the, the ending is far more clear cut. Mm. At the same time, you know, you wonder, why has nobody said anything? Why, has, why is there so much secrecy? You know, is this all that's gone on? And, you know, why do we never find out the name of the narrator? Is it because she's just going to end up another Rebecca, you know? just there's so much that's unknown and unsaid and I think that's why they're such absorbing reading experiences because they demand a lot from you as a reader and you can really insert your own thought processes into it you know you it's it becomes the story you want it to be um mm. which I think is a real skill and yes yeah, she may not be the finest writer in the world but I think I've never been so absorbed in books as I get in in hers like wh- when I think you, I read- you literally what- can't put them down
0: I read all of Rebecca, I think, on a long bus journey to North Wales, and it was just c- completely captivating. It really, you are a completely mess in that world. And I, and I loved the idea that she's not got a name. I thought, well, with one caveat, what really, what did annoy me is that quite early on when she's talking um to Maxim, he says something like, oh, what a lovely, interesting name you've got. and yeah. It's like, if you hadn't put that in, it wouldn't have drawn attention so obviously to the fact that we don't know her name. And I think by drawing attention to it, it loses some, some of the subtlety that all, um, that always have Daphne. You should have thought of that. But, <laughs> um, <laughs> but, um, it is that again, such a beautifully atmospheric novel and so, so many twists. And things. I it was one of those books where I thought I knew what happened before I started it. And then I knew bits of what happened, but there were twists upon twists that I did not realize would happen.
1: So many um, twists.
0: Yeah, so so and so um, coherently and cleverly done as well because some twists you're thinking well that makes none of this make sense but in this you think oh actually it's not that far fetched it's still this is yeah you can understand why she thought he was more spoilers why he was deeply in love with Rebecca but looking back I can also see that he actually hated her
1: yeah
0: uh, and you've already highlighted but what a creation Mrs. Danvers is isn't yeah. she brilliant
1: absolutely brilliant and so Kind of realistic and dark and just wonderful, and she's just so good at bringing people to life that you can just feel that you can see them and and it's I was just I could not put that book down when I started reading. So I was like, "What is she going to do?" I was terrified every time she came on the page. I was like, "She's going to do something." She's yes.
0: going to the and when she got her by the window and she's yeah. was just like, "Why don't you jump?" <laughs>
1: was like, Go on, just yeah. jump! And, I'm
0: like, oh, <laughs> <Yeah>. oh. <laughs> and um was very well served by the Hitchcock film have you seen that yes amazing isn't it brilliant in fact we may have both unconsciously been doing impersonations of her just then <laughs> 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 um, I've not seen the film with my cousin Rachel no I don't,
1: I apparently think. there is one if
0: there is um, one there
1: may not be I may have made that up entirely that there is one
0: uh, there is, I <laughs> there came is. Up... say again
1: I feel like there is cause I feel like I've seen
0: there definitely is in fact because it just came up on Wikipedia when I was looking up um, to remember the names of people so 1952 oh with Olivia de Havilland who huh. I believe, is the sister of the person who played The Second Sister Winter. Correct! Yeah. Um, what a, what a strange pairing. Um, an adaptation of Rebecca that was not, to my mind, successful was one that I saw recently in Oxford. Um, they did it at the Playhouse here. Um, and they did it as a comedy. Oh! It was so bizarre. Um, so, they, they basically had, most of the comedy injected through having invented this manservant who had heard a thick Welsh accent and was played by a woman and that in and of itself was considered hilarious. <laughs> uh, kept dancing, had a dog that did tricks. <laughs> it was, oh, it was horrendous. I was sat there sort of tight-lipped with rage not much of it. <laughs> because they also tried to sort of have their cake and eat it. They wanted it to be dark and scary as well. And the person playing Mrs. Adams I thought was very good and in, in another adaptation would have been very good but you can't expect someone to be terrified about her telling them to jump out the window once you've just had a, a dog playing chicks whilst people sang sea sh- she shanties. doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> to get back to the books, um, I think what she does really well in both of them it, particularly um, in a moment in Rebecca is these sort of set pieces connected with important objects i.e. in Rebecca the, um, the scene in, with the dress yes which um, I'll just explain for people who haven't read it where um, Mrs. Zambas convinces her to dress up like the painting above the stairs like um, of of the is it an ancestor of anyway this woman in this white dress above, in this painting above the stairs she says why don't you wear a dress just like that like it on custom made um, and she starts ascending the staircase at the party and it quickly becomes clear that Rebecca has had previously done the same thing. Um, and in my cousin Rachel, it's the diamond necklace that, um, becomes a sort of totem in some ways for all the relationships. He, Philip gives it to, to Rachel as this, um, symbol of him bringing her back into the family and, and all that sort of thing. It, she invests these objects with such significance that, um, it's, I think it's a really clever way of making objects that, or, or surroundings that don't um, have have huge significance and bring pull the story forward without sort of being too heavy handed with it. Mm. You see what I mean?
1: Yeah, I think it's just really. I think she's very clever in um, the way that she writes in, you know, having those moments and having those things like that, and also making it unclear as to um, you know what those things actually mean so you can read it mm. into what you want to like for example the diamond necklace it's like well does she mean by that that she really is after the money is you know is the importance of that necklace supposed to symbolise to us that she's a, a gold digger or mm. is it representative mm. of you know her beauty or is it representative of, of Philip or you know like, you just think oh, I don't know and it's you know she's really really good at creating that sense of of you just being completely disempowered i think mm, um, that's and that's word, yeah. what i enjoy about reading her books is i just like well i don't know the answer and i feel very frustrated but frustration in a good way because i've read lots of books where the ending has been ambiguous but i'm like well clearly you intended for people to think a particular answer but I'm not really sure that... <laughs>
0: just, just didn't do it very well. <laughs>
1: didn't do it very well. And there aren't really enough clues to to help here. I remember a couple of books I've read that have been like that. And I was just like, really? That, was <laughs> um, that wasn't really very well written at all. So I think she's a master of the genre in general. But I'm saying that I haven't actually read. I don't think I've read anything other than those two novels of hers. Because I just feel like they can't be bettered. But I keep... My mum has read all of her books and she keeps saying I should read them like Jamaica Jamaicanian and all these other ones. But I think they're a bit more historical, aren't they?
0: Yeah, my mum's also a big fan of of hers. Um, and in fact, I don't know if you remember this on my blog a few years ago, we both wrote our reviews of Frenchman's Creek. Oh! Nice. Um, because my mum not only loves the book Frenchman's Creek, which is about a woman who runs off with a pirate, um, <laughs> she also was, seems to be in love with the pirate, as far as I can tell. <laughs> so... Because my, my mother grew up in love with a pirate and married a vicar, so make of that what you will. <laughs> <laughs> but we had these quite competing... I, I enjoyed the book, but um, we had these competing reviews because I thought the heroine was monstrously selfish and this pirate was awful and the whole thing was... Like, the poor husband that she ran away from was a lovely guy and she should have stuck with him and stopped being so horrible to our children. Whereas my mum's <laughs> so review, was essentially the pirate represents romance and adventure and all this sort of thing. Um, but it's a very enjoyable book I think you would liked that one a lot the the only other one I've read um, is The Flight of the Falcon which I thought was quite bad it, was, it might have been her last one it was certainly I say certainly I think it was one of her later ones anyway if not her last one and it's just quite boring it was all about trying to fly in Italy or something I can't remember but the one I really want to read um, is House on the Strand which I think is like time slip novel perhaps
1: oh yeah I've heard that that's good hmm. so maybe we should uh, force ourselves to
0: We could have another Daphne DeMario comparison later. Jamaica and I've Seen a Play version of, um, but I haven't read it.
1: And they did the TV series a while ago, but I didn't watch it because I hadn't read the book.
0: Yes, ditto. (laughs) Even though someone from Emmerdale was in it, that could have convinced me. (laughs) (laughs) But yes, I think it would be hard to better the two that we've we're talking about now. Yeah. I think, talking about the genre, sort of the, because The Wreck is such a gothic novel, that sort of modern gothic, Yeah. Um, it really does seem to be, I can't see how it would be better for being modern gothic either. Like, it seems to put all the ingredients you'd want. And, and things like Shirley Jackson's um, We Have Always Lived in the Castle and the Haunting of Hill House seem to borrow elements, whether deliberately or not. And there's, it, it's something that exists elsewhere, but just so perfectly encapsulated in those characters and in that setting. Yeah. Agreed. Well, they're talking of influence. Of course, she was sued for plagiarizing Jane Eyre um with Rebecca. <laughs> she was I can't remember if it, if it was sued successfully or unsuccessfully, which is probably very important to her. But um the whole um previous wife mysterious house burns down at the end, all those sort of things. <laughs> 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 uh it, and I think they're very different novels stylistically, um, but have a, they do have quite a similar framework if you yes. um, look at it that you way. Know,
1: I mean, I think a lot of stories get recycled and, you know, yeah. I think there are a lot of um, popular ideas like that. But I think, you know, she does something different enough with it to make it quite yeah, absolutely. Say the same.
0: I once meant to make a list of all the books I read The House Burnt Down at the end, because it kept, kept happening. <laughs> but I thought I couldn't really blog about it because it would give away the ending to all sorts of novels. But it does seem to be a, a common trope, just House burns Down at the end.
1: <laughs> well, no, it is a useful way to just neaten things off, isn't it? Yeah,
0: exactly. Like. <laughs> it's all over now. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> that was a weird thing in the play adaptation I saw, because obviously I'd read the, Rebecca, so I knew The House Burnt Down at the end, but the friends I went with who hadn't read it and who actually really loved the play... Um, couldn't tell this from, because the only way they signified it was ev- all the characters, all the actors stood on stage holding candles, and from that we were supposed to, to garner that the house had burned down. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I <don't>, yes. Also, <laughs> sorry, I'm just gonna keep out te- into this play, but the scene where she comes down in the white dress, they decided and said that she would come down in a see through dress. <laughs> and it was see through. So, his, he had, was understandably rather perturbed that she was coming down to the party wearing essentially nothing, but, but for quite different reasons from the book.
1: Wow. Very bizarre. Very bizarre.
0: Um, but yes, I think she's, I think she's one of these novelists who is still fairly widely read, but isn't that highly thought of. Um, in terms of sort of, I can't imagine many academics writing about her or or anything like that and and I don't think I think she is a better writer than she has thought of being
1: Yes and I think you know saying that she's sort of trashy and all the rest of it misses the point entirely You know, because actually yes she writes books that people enjoy and I think she's a very popular writer but she's a very popular writer because actually writing books that are that well plotted someone who's attempting to write a book myself (laughs) is very difficult
0: yeah, because she does do sensation and she does twist, but and if she just did that, I think she would be a trashy novelist. But it is, as you said, that psychological depth mm. and sort it's, of, very um, yeah, it's very subtle. Yeah, very subtle. There's lots of nuances to it. Yeah, um, particularly in my cousin Rachel, where I just it just constantly um, thinking about it just baffles me how she's made a character in Rachel that cleverly. It's just such a, an achievement to make a character who is that ambiguous. Without being shadowy, because you, you know, I mean, she, in a way she's shadowy, but you, it's not as though she's ambiguous because you don't know anything about her. Yeah. It's just the more you know, well, the, the, less know the less certain you feel.
1: It's so frustrating. <laughs> I just want to know. I really do just want to know. I'd love to just have been able to sit down with Daphne tomorrow and say, right, seriously, just tell me
0: <laughs>
1: you do it or not. Okay? I just need to know.
0: Yeah, let's get down to brass tacks now. <laughs> I get it. You're a clever novelist. Now just spill. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Can't leave me like this.
0: So at least everything was yes, tidied up from Rebecca. <laughs> That's something.
1: Wonderful book. Well, which would you choose, though?
0: That's the difficulty, isn't it? Um, I think I would choose, just because of what a brilliant portrait Mrs. Danvers is, um, I'm going to pick Rebecca. I think perhaps it's not as great an achievement as a novel, because I think I'm just so impressed by My Cousin Rachel, but the one that I will return to, and the one that seems to have achieved um, basically creating archetypes, um, is Rebecca, and I'm going to pick that one. How about you?
1: I would agree with you. I think My Cousin Rachel is a tour to force, but I think the one that I've returned to as a source of enjoyment um, is Rebecca, because it is such a fantastic story, Mm. and so atmospheric, and something that you can really... Frighten yourself with. Even though you know what's going to happen, I still get scared. <laughs>
0: but I love it. Um, and a word of warning to anyone tempted. The, I'm shortly, out, well, in fact, immediately after I read Rebecca the first time, I read Rebecca's Tale by Sally Bowman. Which is a sequel and it's terrible. Don't do it. <laughs> Don't do it to yourself. <laughs> I'm so cross. <laughs> For starters, she's, she always well, she has like four, three or four different narrators and one of them is Rebecca. And I thought, well, you, you've you just done away with one of the cleverest things in Definitely Dumouriez's novel of never hearing directly from this woman. By just being like, Oh guys, don't worry, I've got it. I'll write I'll write in the voice of Rebecca. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> <laughs> so sorry, Sally Bowman, you shouldn't have been let near it. I've not read Mrs. the Winter by Susan Hill. I, I, hear better than...
1: I wasn't massively impressed by it.
0: Uh-huh. Yeah.
1: But I don't <laughs> I don't really like Susan Hill's writing full stop, so I like the woman in black, but everything else she's written I haven't really got along with, so uh,
0: yeah. Whereas I do like a lot of what I've read by Susan Hill, but I having been burnt by Sally Bowman, I don't feel I can invest in another Rebecca sequel.
1: <laughs> you, like you might like it if you like, if you like her Susan Hill's writing style. So,
0: maybe, maybe I'll brave it. Yeah. Maybe. It wasn't a
1: bad book. It wasn't a bad book. It just okay. wasn't really my cup of tea. I'm not really a big sort of books spin-off book person in general. I'm like, do you know what? Let's just leave the original where it was. There's no need to take it further.
0: <laughs> That's something we should discuss in another episode, yes. in more depth. Yes. <laughs> um, but yeah, we'd love to know other Daphne de Mario's, uh, to read. Um, I don't want to know how much you love the pirate mum. Keep quiet about that. <laughs> uh, but, as it, and I know you don't know how to listen to the podcast, so you won't be listening. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yes, other than Daphne de Mario's. And we'd love to know, of course, which ones you choose, um, and which play, what you choose in plays versus poetry. Yes. Um, next time we, we haven't decided what we're doing in the first half I'm sure we'll decide that moments before we start recording but, <laughs> but uh, the books we'll be doing um, are Wind in the Willows by Kenneth Graham versus Winnie the Pooh by A.A. A. Mellon oh. um, which I'm very excited about and Rachel will go and reread them to find out <laughs> what she thinks about them
1: <laughs> oh yes I will
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's what you can email Rachel about harangue her about rereading them <laughs>
1: Okay, well, see you next time, everybody.